Good morning. I would typically say that you're all brave and courageous for coming out in this weather, but it's warmed up to zero. So it's really the first service that gets the award this morning. Zero degrees. Happy Valentine's Day, too. Today, uh, the one day a year that we celebrate love. And I've got some cheesy Valentine's jokes to share with all of you. What did the stamp say to the envelope on Valentine's Day? I'm stuck on you. Okay. What did the painter say to her sweetheart? I love you with all my art. What did the cucumber say to the pickle? You mean a great deal to me. And what did one sheep say to the other? I love you, okay, but how did the other sheep respond? Well, you're not so bad yourself, okay. That's all I've got. So, you know, over the three decades of being a pastor, three, 30 years plus, my gosh, time flies, I regret to say that I've seen way too many families quarrel over possessions and money after a family member dies. And sadly, sometimes they quarrel over them in the hospital room while that family member is still alive. I've seen it, and it's horrible. And worse, sometimes things can get physical. Most of you know uh, that my dad died eight years ago. My mom just passed away at the end of December. And long before they departed, they created a will together and if a will is done properly, it becomes a legally binding document, document that must be carried out exactly to the wishes of the deceased person. My brother and I are the executors of our parents' will, which means that we now have a fiduciary duty, a legal and ethical obligation to be the ones to execute our parents' will as if they were doing it themselves. And thank God that my brother and I are on, in total agreement. We're on the same page. It's going uh, really well. But did you know, did, listen to this, did you know that God has a will? And did you also know that we are the executors of God's will? While teaching his disciples how to pray, Jesus once told them, this is Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 through 10. He said, pray like this. Our Father in heaven hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this is simply saying three things. Number one, God is our heavenly parent. Number two, our heavenly parent has a will. And number three, we are the executors of God's will here on earth. And in a few other places in the Bible, we're given a metaphor about, about God. And in this metaphor, it depicts a landowner who temporarily leaves his estate, puts his caretakers in charge. And in these stories, there's always an exhortation that as executors of, uh, of the landowner's estate, these caretakers now have a fiduciary duty to execute the landowner's will as if the landowner was executing it himself. In the, legal, in the legal world, the term fiduciary duty is used. But in the biblical word, we tend to use the term stewardship. We are stewards of God's will. And, all have a, and we have a spiritual obligation to live 
and to love in this world as if God were doing it himself. And I'm bringing up the subject of God's will today because as we come to the final chapter in the end of our series in 1 John today, John makes an amazing statement in verse 14 and 15 in chapter 5. And here's what he says. He says, this is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything, if we ask anything, I looked that word up, and it's the word anything, okay? If we ask anything according to God's will, according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. In other words, as stewards of God's will on earth, if we need something in order to execute God's will, all we need to do is ask God for it, and God will give it to us. And at first glance, this section, if you've been tracking through 1 John, this section seems to be pretty, a pretty random thought by John. It doesn't fit the overall context of 1 John. But in actuality, it has everything to do with the context of 1 John. It's going to become perfectly clear uh, as we explore the meaning of God's will in this message. And this, isn't gonna, this is not a, an exhaustive, exhaustive sorry, study of God's will this morning. You can do that on your own. Instead, the message today is intended to provide two reliable filters that we can run all those Bible passages on this subject through so that we don't end up making incorrect conclusions, creating false hopes, and hurting others and even ourselves about the things that we ask God for in prayer that we don't end up getting. And sadly, I've seen a lot of people get hurt over this. But these two filters basically say the same thing, but they look at this topic from two different, very different perspectives. The first filter will look at this topic from God's perspective and the second one from our perspective. So let's just dump, jump right in, look at filter number one, which is this. God is the exclusive author and directory, directory, director of his story, of history, right? God is the exclusive author and director of his story. It's a little play there on history. Now, how many of you love to discuss um, and debate theology? Anybody here like that? Yeah, I know that a lot of you do. I like that. I, I actually love to do this. Theology is simply an attempt to organize the Bible into a catalog of religious doctrines. And it, we do that to kind of help us better understand God and his plan for mankind. But it's important to understand that the Bible isn't written as a catalog of religious doctrines. And so we don't always get those doctrines right, which is why there are thousands of churches in the world with thousands of different doctrinal beliefs. And I might add, every one of them believes that their doctrines are the right ones. A, a couple of decades ago, I began to look at the Bible and all of history more as a love story than as a catalog of doctrines. And not only has that helped me to better understand God and his plan to build an eternal family, it also helped me to share my faith in a more enjoyable and I think a more understandable way as I, as I share it. And I mean, not everyone likes the dryness and headiness of theology, but everyone loves a great love story. 
And God has written a doozy of a love story, a story that he conceived in eternity past, a story that he launched when he pressed the play button in Genesis 1-1, a story that's been playing out just the way he wrote it ever since, and a story that will continue to play out until its climactic conclusion, as Gabe shared in, uh, while he was leading worship, until the Messiah returns. And when thinking about God's will, it's so important to run everything through this first filter, that God is the exclusive or sole author and director, and I might add the hero of the story as well, in this kind of epic blockbuster tale that we're all part of, a tale that is old as time, true as it can be. (laughs) I love Beauty and the Beast. Okay, and it's important to understand that God didn't collaborate. He didn't consult with anyone when writing this tale, nor with anyone about how it should play out, nor with anyone about how or when it's going to end. And Isaiah chapter 46, verse 9 through 11, makes this perfectly clear. Listen to this. It says, Remember the former things, the things of long ago. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there's none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purposes will stand, and I will do all that I please. And this part speaks about his exclusivity, not only as God, but as the author and the producer of the story. And then he goes on to say, from the east, I summon a bird of prey from a far off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that I will do. And this section speaks about how God will use anything and everything in creation to ensure that his story plays out exactly the way that he wrote it. You can't get any clearer than this about God's exclusive role in, as, an, as the author and director. And there are many other passages that say something similar. And since God is both the author and the director of history, of his story, and don't miss this, since God is both the author and the director of his story, God either allows or causes everything that takes place in this world, and that includes everything that takes place in our individual lives. God either allows or even causes everything that takes place in this world, including all the things that happen in our lives. And he does this in order to push his story down the road to its eventual conclusion. And of course, this can sometimes cause theological challenges to the goodness of God, right? Because so many people, including many of us, I know for me personally, experience some pretty horrible things in this world during our lifetime. And it can be a tough pill to swallow sometimes that God allows some of these things to take place or actually sometimes even causes them to take place. 
I remember when I was a young believer in Southern California, I, I was pretty numb emotionally because of some of the, the negative things that took place that I experienced in my childhood. And honestly, back then, I, I didn't have a lot of love and empathy and especially patience for those who had messed up lives, which is ironic because I had a messed up life. And believe me, a lot of us with messed up lives end up at church. That's why we come. That's why I ended up at church 38 years ago. But one of the things I noticed the most shortly after I became a follower of Jesus was how much he loved, uh, how much love and, and empathy and patience Jesus had for people like this. In fact, he, he was a magnet to them. And focused most of his life hanging out with them. I entered seminary right about this same time. Began moving toward becoming a full-time pastor. And so I began to ask God to help me grow in this area. But some months later, the wheels came off in my life. I mean, really came off. And I was faced with some serious life challenges. One of which... Criti critically affected the health of our 16-year-old daughter for many years to follow. And it was an extremely difficult season of life, and quite honestly, it made me mad that God would allow this to happen, and it took my faith all the way to the edge. I mean, I was just dangling my toes over the edge, ready to bail. And one day... Some months later from that, during a time of lamenting my life to God, I cried out in tears, and I said, give me a break, God. I mean, I asked you to help me become a deeper, more loving and caring person. This is what you give me in return. And a few moments later, I distinctly remember hearing a still calm voice in my head that said, just how did you think that was going to happen, Gene? And I remember thinking, well, a magic wand or a pill would have been nice. But God used that, that experience and many others to change me. Most of you know that King David had an affair, and he had an affair with a married woman named Bathsheba, and then he had her husband killed in battle later on. Pretty bad stuff. I mean, really bad stuff. David then marries Bathsheba, and a child is conceived from their affair. But sometime later, God sends the prophet Nathan Nathan to David, who tells David that, that God is going to take the life of this child as punishment for what he had done. And Nathan leaves the, as Nathan leaves, the child becomes sick. And for the next seven days, David lays on the ground in sackcloth and ashes. He eats nothing, he drinks nothing, and he pleads nonstop with God to relent. Every day, the elders beg David to get up and eat something or drink something, but he never moves. He never stops lamenting. But despite David's pleas, the child dies on the seventh day. 
Now, I don't know about you, but this is one of those stories that just rings of injustice in my head. That's where I go. Why would God punish the child for David's sinful actions? And while we're at it, why would God allow or cause my daughter to be afflicted in order to refine me? But what's really interesting in David's story is that he never cries injustice. He never even questions God's will at all in the matter. In fact, once the child is dead, this is what the text says. This is 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 20 through 23. It says, Then David got up from the ground after he had washed, put on lotion, and changed his clothes. He went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He went into a synagogue and began to worship God. And then it says he went back to his own house, and at his request, they served him food, and he ate. And his attendants come to him and said, why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. And David's answer is, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he's dead, why should I go on fasting? I can't bring him back again. But don't miss what he finishes saying. He says, I will go to him, but he will never be able to return to me. David knew that life is only temporary. And even though he couldn't bring his child back, David knew that he would one day be reunited again at the end of the story with his child. David had an eternal perspective that allowed him to embrace whatever God's will was and then to move on with his life, but now a changed person refined by the pain and the loss and the sorrow and the suffering. One more story. Last week, Gabe, Gabe is, was leading worship this morning. Gabe did an amazing job. If you didn't hear last week's message, go back and listen to it. Gabe looked at a scene from John 21. In this scene, Jesus is reinstated, reinstating Peter into the fold uh, after Peter had denied Jesus three times just before he was crucified. So remember, he's crucified. He resurrects on the third, three days later, and he hangs around for a while. But he and Peter... I have yet to have the you really sold me out talk yet. You really threw me under the bus. And Gabe mentioned how John was especially loved by Jesus. And at some point in the conversation now between Jesus and Peter, Jesus tells Peter that Peter's going to die a, mitre, a martyr's death. Not a real motivational speech going on here. And instead of Peter saying something like, really, this is a joke, right? Instead, at that very moment, Peter sees John and he asks Jesus, this is verse 21, well, what about him, your favorite? Is he going down as a martyr too? Maybe a little jealousy going on here? But listen how Jesus responds. This is verse 22. If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Jesus is basically saying, Peter, this is none of your business. 
Focus on my will for your life. Let me worry about my will for John's life. Now, why does Jesus say this? And it comes across, at least the way it is in the text, very bluntly to Peter. Why does he come across this way? Because it is God, not us, who is the exclusive author and director of this story. And part of maturing as a believer in God is surrendering to the reality that even though we may not agree or we may not even like how a particular scene or two plays out in our life or in the life of somebody else in this story, faith, mature faith, is trusting that of all the infinite choices that laid before God, the choice that God makes in any situation is the best one to move his story down the road. And like David, it helps to have an eternal perspective, not an earthly one. If all we have is an earthly perspective, if this all there is, then nothing makes sense. But when we have an eternal perspective in the life to come, it covers over a multitude of pain and sorrow in this life right now because God is going to reconcile all of it someday. God is both the ex exclusive author and director of his story. The second filter to run God's will through is that God will never answer a prayer that is outside of his will. Never. And this point simply reverses what John said in the passage we looked at. If God will only answer prayers that are according to wills, then he will never answer any that aren't. And I'm reversing this because I believe in doing so it will bring more clarity to this important subject. God will never answer prayer that is outside of his will. No matter how many times we ask, no matter how we phrase the request. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I would have loved to have a formula to get anything I wanted from my parents, a formula that would manipulate them in such a way that they became totally obligated or compelled to give me whatever I asked for. I mean, how cool would that have been to have that tool in my toolbox? But you know, in reality, kids often do learn how to manipulate their parents, and they learn it by intuitively exploiting their weaknesses. It's not like they have a manual on how to do this. It's just intuitive how it works out. For instance, some kids learn that if you just whine, or throw a tantrum long enough, they'll eventually get what they want. Okay, okay, you can have that ice cream. Just stop whining, for God's sake. Others learn how to play one parent against the other in order to get what they want. Mom, Dad said I can't go to the party, but you know how good socializing is for healthy child development. You're so right, honey. Go and have some fun. I'll deal with your father. Or still others use guilt by saying things like, you don't love me. <laughs> You've never loved me. I hate being a part of this family. No, no, you're so wrong about this. I love you more than anything. Here's the car keys, even though you're only 12 years old. This happens, by the way. I mean, we're laughing because we know this happens. My wife, Andrea, always says, we train people how 
to treat us. Think about that. We train people how to treat us. And she means really by not setting healthy boundaries when necessary or by setting healthy boundaries when necessary. And if our children learn through experience that they can get what they want by exploiting our lack of healthy boundaries, then this will become the most used tool in their toolbox. And guess what? This kind of exploitive manipulation doesn't go away once we become adults. Without some kind of transformation in our lives, we will continue to use this manipulative tool in our relationships, in our work, at our schools, you name it, and we will manipulate it. Let's just say that through the lens of anthropology, getting whatever we want, whenever we want it, is just a part of the fallen human condition. It's just one of those those human failings that we need to be aware of and constantly working on to resolve. And so, with this passage in John in mind, understandably, in 1 John 5, there are many people who look at a passage like this one that says, ask anything you want according to God's will, and it's yours, and they sincerely see it as a formula, a way to obligate God to give us whatever we want if we just simply use the correct formula. And there are other passages that add fuel to this tendency. Jesus said in Matthew 18, 19, that if two of you on earth agree about anything, about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Just two, just takes two people to agree. He said in Matthew 21, 22, that if you believe, if you just believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Jesus said in John 14, 14, that if you ask for me for anything in my name, I will do it. And so it's easy to see that if we run all these passages through our human manipulative filters, we're going to come up with formulas. that we sincerely believe obligates God to give us whatever we ask for, as long as we just do it that way. But just for a moment, let's think rashly about this, okay? Do you think there were at least two people who got together before last Sunday who agreed together that Kansas City should have won the Super Bowl? (laughs) Of course there were. Now, maybe you say, well, God doesn't care about football. Well, he cares about everything falls under his watch, everything. Allows or causes, allows or causes, allows or causes. He never slumbers nor sleeps. He sees it all. Do you think that there were millions of people prior to last year's presidential election who asked God in Jesus' name to let Donald Trump win that election? It would be ridiculous and absurd to think otherwise. And yet Kansas City lost the Super Bowl and Donald Trump lost the presidential election. Why? Because for whatever reason, and honestly, it doesn't matter if you believe the election was stolen or not. 
for whatever reason, it just wasn't God's will for them to win. Plain and simple, end of story. And I I need to add this because I probably am making some conservatives upset with that statement. So for all you liberals out there, for whatever reason, it was also God's will for Donald Trump to win in 2016. So I'm not taking sides here. God either allows or causes everything that happens in his story. The Apostle Paul once was struggling with some kind of serious life issue. And in 2 Corinthians 12.8, it says that he pleads three times. I think it's just a phrase where it means like a million times, you know, like over and over again. I keep asking God to take this away from me. But God's answer to Paul every time is no. Why? Because it just wasn't God's will to do so. And if you go read the passage, it explicitly tells you why. But some would want to tell us that God didn't heal Paul because he didn't get agreement from at least one other person or he didn't have enough faith when he prayed those prayers. When it was time for Jesus to go to the cross, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And in Luke twenty-two forty-two, he pleads with God the Father and says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. And don't miss this because Jesus is saying, I flat out don't want to do this. I don't want to die on that cross. Take it away from me. That's what he's saying here. Don't ever think that giving up his life was a slam dunk for Jesus. He sweat drops of blood in that garden. But like Paul, the answer from God is no. Why? Because this also is not God's will. But make sure you notice that in this particular case, Jesus, who is God in a bod, right? He's God in human flesh, is mature and wise enough to know that God the Father will never answer a prayer that's out of his will. And so even though Jesus is dead serious about wanting to be let off the hook, he adds to his prayer, yet not my will be done, but yours. So today's Valentine's Day, right? I don't know if you've ever looked at how we got to Valentine's Day, but it's named after St. Valentino of Rome, who lived during the third century. So we're talking a long time ago. And now you know why Italians are thought to be the best lovers, because of St. Valentine. But while under house arrest for sharing his faith, Valentine had an opportunity to discuss faith with the judge in this case. And the judge mentions that he has a young daughter who's blind. And so the judge says to Valentine, if you will heal my daughter's blindness, I will grant you whatever you want. And so the daughter is brought to Valentine, who then lays his hands on her eyes, prays to God, and it turns out that it's God's will to heal her that day. So now the judge says to Valentine, what do you want in return? And he replies, go break all the idols that surround your house. 
fast for three days, and then you and all the 44 members of your household should be baptized after that. And that's exactly what happens. 45 people come to faith that day. Sometime later, Valentine is arrested once again for sharing his faith. But by this, this time, he's brought before the Emperor Claudius Gothicus, who orders him put to death. But before his death, Valentine, the story goes, Valentine cuts a piece of parchment into the shape of a heart, writes, I'm your Valentine, and sends it to the young woman that he healed of, of blindness earlier. And this is how we get Valentines today, celebrating love. And worship team, you can come up back on stage now. <clears throat> so just taking this story at face value, I think we can say three things about God's will, okay? Number one, it was God's will for this young woman to be healed of blindness. And number two, it was God's will for Valentine to be put to death. And if you're normal, you can easily see God's goodness in the daughter's healing, but you may struggle to see the goodness, God's goodness in Valentine's execution. And yet both fall under God's will. And then the third thing I want you to notice is that it apparently was God's will for me to give this message today on Valentine's Day. Because I wasn't thinking about any of this stuff two weeks ago. This all came this week. A day that we celebrate love. And remember, I started this message by saying that it seemed like the passage for today was out of context for the rest of John's letter because the main context of John's letter is that God is love. God is love. And if God is love, then it logically follows that we should love too. And as executors of God's will, then we should love down here on earth as if God were doing it himself. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Jesus said. And we may not understand or even like everything that God wants to do here on earth, but if we look at everything that he does do through the mature eyes of an eternal perspective, then even when, like Jesus, we don't want to face a particular difficult situation, whether it's our situation or someone else's, we can ask God, to make this situation go away if he is willing. But we can also add to our prayer like Jesus, yet not my will, but your will be done. Because this is God's story, it's not our story. We just have a part to play. And then when we say that, not my will, but your will be done. Trust that of all the infinite choices God can make in any situation, the one that God does end up making is the best choice for the greater good of this incredible love story.